Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The definitive rap is proud to be the official podcast of VinNews.com. On Tuesday, August 31st, President Biden gave a defiant speech to the American people following the disastrous pullout from Afghanistan. While 84% of Americans gave the president failing grades on the process, and even his most reliable allies in the media were unusually critical of him, Joe Biden saw things differently. First, he pointed the finger directly at Donald Trump. This was his fault, followed by, I campaigned on ending this 20-year war for which we have no national security interests. Regarding the horrific evacuation, Biden proclaimed, nobody could have seen this happening, even though the Taliban started overrunning every town and village as far back as May. The night before Biden's address, two fathers whose sons were among the 13 troops killed during the evacuation told Sean Hannity that Biden seemed disinterested in their tragedies and then spoke of how disgusted they were as they watched Biden looking at his watch as every casket was removed from the plane. During his defiant speech, he failed to mention a 36-year-old Afghani named Mohammed, who 13 years ago rescued him and Senators John Kerry and Chuck Hagel, who were stuck in the Afghan mountains, who is now trapped in Afghanistan and has no way of getting out with his family. My rant is over, and now Bela can take over as a calm voice of reason. Thank you, Alan. It is disturbing to hear of the new report that the Taliban offered control of Kabul for the evacuation of Americans and the Biden administration turned it down. With the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the White House now has the task to review and figure out what went wrong after Kabul fell to the Taliban and confront how they messed up when things got bad in Afghanistan. And fingers will start pointing at Biden. But members of Congress are not waiting around. They took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and started blaming former President Trump before the congressional hearings and investigations have even begun. The fact of the matter is that, as Mike Rogers of Alabama, the top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, said that Biden was the one who made the final decision, and he's the reason the U.S. left Afghanistan the way they left. Interestingly, many Democrats including close allies of Biden, are criticizing him too. With us today to discuss the takeover in Kabul by the Taliban is our most sought-after guest on these matters, Colonel Richard Kemp. We thank the colonel for giving us his valuable time, and we are honored to have Colonel Richard Kemp, a most humble man who prefers to just be introduced as former British Army commander, but who is so much more that my brief introduction will not do him enough justice. Among his assignments were the command of Operational Thingol in Afghanistan. Richard Kemp, who is former chairman of the Cobra Intelligence Group, head of international terrorism intelligence at the cabinet office, and currently a strategic advisor and consultant and writer, 
media commentator, and author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Attack State Red. Colonel, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much, Baylor, and it's great to be with you again. I don't think I've ever been called humble before, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take that as it's meant. Uh, but thank you. It's great. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, you have been quoted saying that what's happening now in Afghanistan is worse than Saigon. Please share what's been going on with our audience. Well, I, I think um, the reality of this situation is that it is the greatest, it is the greatest crisis, foreign policy and defense crisis affecting America and the West since probably the Second World War. And if you take the, the debacle at Suez by the British and the French um, in the 50s and um, the, the fall of Saigon in 75, if you look at those two events and combine them, both of them were absolutely dreadful, catastrophic events. Combine the two and you still haven't got anywhere near you have with this situation. Um, because it, this is, not, this is, this is a, a, deliberate, a deliberate failure of policy by predominantly by the US, but also by NATO and including Britain. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's like a self-inflicted wound. And it is hugely damaging for the United States and the Western prestige around the world, their influence at a time when uh, we are confronting a greater threat from China and Russia, really, than we have before, um, certainly from China. Uh, it's also a huge blow to um, many of our allies, and particularly the US allies, including in the re in Middle East, um, allies like Israel, like uh, Saudi Arabia, and other Gulf, other Sunni Arab countries um, in the Middle East, who, who have been, for decades, have had to rely on US support, but don't necessarily think they can any longer. And it's also a devastating blow for the people of Afghanistan, who were expecting much more than they got from the promises made by our countries. Um, and I think probably, uh, you know, not necessarily the most significant, but another very significant factor is the, the enormous danger that the West now faces from terrorist attacks emanating from Afghanistan. All of those things combined, um, you know, have, have make this, a, a, I think, a disaster that will take us all probably several decades to recover from if we're able to. Colonel, there are many in Congress, and you know how politics goes, calling for his impeachment. Um, you were recently on Fox News with Mark Levin, and you said, no, he should not be impeached. He should be court-martialed because he's the commander-in-chief. If you could elaborate on that a little bit more, we'd appreciate that as well. Yeah, I, I, I said that to underline the, um, I think, the, the, the really grievous nature of, of President Biden's conduct of, of uh, American policy in this in this situation which i think is it's it's i would say it's pretty much the worst policy decision that i've ever seen any american president make in my lifetime um and i i said i i said he should be court-martialed knowing that under the u.s constitution he cannot be court-martialed but it, it 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 kind of in some ways reflects the fact that the u.s has almost surrendered it has surrendered effectively, surrendered Afghanistan to the Taliban. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I, would, I would say something, something needs to happen to ensure he is, uh, and I speak, you know, I, I recognise speaking as a Briton, it's not my place to decide who should be president of the United States. But President Biden, every action he takes affects all of us, and particularly Britain, which I think are 
we consider ourselves to be the closest allies of America. Whether America considers that, I don't know. But uh, it certainly affects the rest of the world. And I think anything that can be done to bring an end towards his presidency, um, whether it's, uh, you know, an impeachment, whether it's um, a a, a severe um, rebuke in the midterm elections, or indeed um, it has to wait until the end of his term when he's voted out of office. But I hope one of those three things would happen to end this because we can't afford any more of these disastrous decisions. Colonel, were there warning signs of a Taliban takeover that was missed? I think I think there was a lot that was missed. And um, I, I believe that the, you know, both the American government and the British government, judging by their intelligence assessments from both countries, both of which influence each other, of course, um, that the Taliban would take over. The, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was not made with the notion that the Afghan government could carry on the Afghan armed forces could carry on. It was assessed by the US and by Britain that the, um, the, the government in Kabul would fall within, I think, best case, nine months of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then it, that was then later revised to about three months, about the end of the year, about the end of this year, which was something that our foreign secretary made a note of when he, he was, uh, he was um, interviewed by the uh, British Foreign Affairs Select Committee in Parliament yesterday, and he said that he um, he expected uh, Kabul to fall by the end of the year. So there was this, you know, anyone who who pretends that uh, you know we had confidence that the Afghan government and security forces could continue is simply not true. But actually, they didn't fall at the end of the year. They fell as we or fell before we even left, um, and, and and that was a complete failure of intelligence and failure of military assessment that led to that that situation, which took many people by surprise. And the fact it took them by surprise is is illustrated by, you know, all the desperate images we've seen and all the reports we've heard from Kabul airport. Effectively, the US, the greatest superpower in the world, being chased out of Afghanistan under fire with suicide bomb attacks, tragically killing 13 American soldiers and um, and, and rocket attacks on the airport as the, as as we all left. So, you know, that, that there, was a, there was a huge failure. And I think the greatest failure was a misappreciation of the strength of the Kabul government once America had left and the strength of the, US, of the uh, Afghan armed forces once the U.S. had left. And questions must be asked about how those failures came about. You know, Colonel, for years, I've always wondered this. Uh, I've seen what U.S. troops look like. I've seen pictures of you in uniform. Uh, U.S. troops, British troops, you guys are pretty tough looking. You've, you're, you're armored. You've got knives, guns, rifles, pistols. You're armed to the hilt. And I watched the Taliban. They're dressed in sheets, robes, and either sandals or sneakers. Now, I understand in guerrilla warfare, if you invade, they can hide out in the mountains because they know the mountain areas very well. But now that they are in control of a state, they're, they're wide open. How is it that those ragtag guerrillas can even be a force to compete against some of the strongest armies in the world? Well, they can't is the reality. Um, and, and there was no, um, there was no single engagement between us or British forces and the Taliban, which the Taliban won, not one in the whole of the 20 year campaign. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a military defeat. 
um, it was it was a political defeat. And, and one of the reasons the defeat came about was because political leaders in our countries failed to maintain public support for our operations in Afghanistan. They failed to explain why it was happening properly. They failed to rally public support. And therefore, people like President Biden felt there wasn't popular support for it and he should just pull out. Um, but the, 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 real, the real defeat came, not, not so much from a Taliban victory, but from a, um, a, a defeat of the government and the security forces. They simply dissolved, really, rather than there wasn't much fighting going on. There was more, a bit more in the south, but there wasn't a lot of fighting going on in Afghanistan. Simply, they, they, you know, they faded away. The reason for that is very simple and, and easily predictable. They depended, both the government and the Afghan security forces depended completely on having the U.S. behind them and to a lesser extent Britain, but having the U.S. behind them, having U.S. forces on the ground, having U.S. air support, having U.S. technical support, logistic support to the sophisticated equipment they had, but ultimately having having the sort of the final guarantee that they would not be defeated by the presence and the commitment of the U.S. And when that carpet of support was ripped out from under their feet by President Biden, they collapsed because they didn't have that any longer. Um, so it was it was more moral than than physical defeat. And, and you know, Napoleon, I don't particularly like to quote Napoleon, but I'll make an exception. Napoleon said in war, the moral is to the physical as three is to one, meaning morale is three times as important as all other factors in war. And that is absolutely true. And when that morale went, the whole edifice crashed down. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the President Biden had the temerity to effectively accuse the Afghan security forces of cowardice. Well, they weren't cowards. They, they, um, they, they sustained 50,000 deaths, not casualties, but deaths, and a lot more wounded fighting the Taliban in the last seven years alone and more if you take the whole time of the campaign. Um, so they were very brave people. They were often given a battering by the Taliban, and they often gave the Taliban a battering as well. But they were fighting it out while the Americans were there behind them. Um, and the fact, you know, that, 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 that one, one another factor that went into their collapse was that they, the, the 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 Afghan people do not think of Afghanistan as a a kind of country in the same way as we think of our countries. They are tribal people. Their allegiances to their tribes, to their ethnic groups, to the regions they come from. Um, and, and, you know, they weren't looked after by their government. Their government often didn't pay them. They were corrupt. They defrauded them. Um, and, and therefore, when America left, they had no allegiance to Kabul. And many of them, not, not everyone, but many of them had no allegiance to Kabul. Some went over to the other side because they wanted to survive. They didn't want to get killed by the Taliban uh, without U.S. support. Colonel, what happens to the Americans still in Afghanistan? Also, according to the State Department, majority of Afghans who worked for the U.S. and applied for visa were left behind. What happens now to all these people? Well, um, the Taliban are going door to door looking for them, and they will kill them when they find them. Uh, they might possibly punish them another way or imprison them, but I think you know one must assume the worst case, they will hunt them down and kill them. Now, the, these people, in fact, are hostages of the Taliban at the moment because the Taliban know that we want them. We want them out. And it may be, it may be, we'll have to see, it may be the Taliban are prepared to bargain for their release, but they will be extracting an extremely heavy price for us to get them out. Some will be able to um, 
hopefully make their escape across the borders up into the north, uh, across into uh, into Iran and and then through through Iran to Turkey and down into Pakistan. So there are a number of options if people can get out there and if they're allowed into the neighboring countries, which is a problem that, that, that many of them have faced and many of them are waiting to try and get in. And there needs to be a huge diplomatic effort by Western countries with those neighboring countries to to allow them in and get them through their country back to us. But the future is is very, very bleak, no matter which way you look at it for all of those people. You know, Colonel, I'm a pretty political person. And if this wasn't about our military, I'd be reveling and watching the Democrats squirm. But uh, I'm a patriot first before anything else, before politics. And there was a part of me that said, you know what, this was expected. Uh, for Joe Biden to be our commander in chief is like giving a blind man the keys to the car and then getting angry at him when he smashes the car. Uh, but then yesterday I'm watching a press conference. and I see Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, saying that he's not ready to label the Taliban, whether they're you know good or bad. And then I saw General Milley, who is the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, saying that we might have to work with these people. So I- I'm looking all around and-, and I've never seen our country, the people who are the most in charge, so either so clueless. Um, and and, I'm, and I, it brings me back to when Donald Trump was president. You know, the media loved to say how the NATO allies were making fun of Trump behind his back. I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall in these meetings. But what role, because you mentioned NATO earlier and you mentioned Europe earlier, what's happening in your countries? Are you looking at this saying, why did we let Biden run the show? Why didn't we tell him that we can't let him do this? What's going on in Europe now? And, and how do how do we coalesce? Um, again, our reputation is shot as far as I'm concerned. The question is, it's a, in, in NATO, in Europe, how do you do you start again? Do you say we're moving forward, we're doing this without Joe Biden until there's another election? Well, what's the process? Well, there's two things you raise there. The first one is the is whether we should be dealing with the Taliban or not. Um, and, and it made me laugh. It, actually, it didn't make me laugh. It it, it, it is, is deeply, I think, worrying to hear Joe Biden saying the Taliban have promised that they will not let terrorists operate from Afghan soil. Now, the Taliban are terrorists. They're nothing else. They talk about how Biden again talked, and the same talk is over here in Britain, about um, how, uh, you know, we, we and the uh, Taliban are fighting against Islamic State together. We're not. The Taliban, you know, the idea, and he said the Taliban are the sworn enemy of the Islamic State. Not true either. They, they, these are Islamic jihadists who share the same doctrine. They have the same techniques. They are as extreme as each other. Uh, they want to achieve the same thing. They just wear different cap badges. But sometimes they they fight each other, they kill each other, and sometimes they cooperate together. They can't be seen, the Taliban can't be seen as the good terrorists now. They are the, as bad a terrorist as they ever were. Of course, now that doesn't, and I don't think we should establish diplomatic relations with them either now or ever. Uh, we should do all we can to try and undermine them. And there are other ways we can undermine them. But what we should certainly do, um, we should certainly look at being pragmatic in relation to getting out um, some of these hostages that are still in Afghanistan. I don't say we should uh, pay the price that the Taliban will want, but we should certainly do what we need to do, if necessary, in some cases, speaking to the Taliban 
to get them out. But it's not a kind of policy that I would advocate for the longer term. Um, and when it comes to NATO, I think NATO was seen for what it really is, what President Trump and many other presidents before him um, have, have accused NATO of, which is just not pulling their weight, um, not being a serious alliance. And, and that's been de demonstrated. I mean, our own Secretary of State here in Britain claims that he tried to put together a NATO coalition, excluding the US once the US left. Um, and he got no positive answers from anyone. I, I think the only exception to that was Turkey. But, um, you know, that, that shows what NATO really is. Without the US, NATO is nothing. And, and, you know, the US is NATO. And the other countries, including Britain, are pretty much window dressing around NATO. And so that, that's something that must be addressed because NATO is an extremely important alliance that is even more important as we face increasing challenges from countries like uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea and others, um, which we will face much more strongly as a result of this display of weakness by the West. Um, and, and the other relationship that's extremely important, in my view, I touched on it just now, is the British-American relationship. I believe that's very important. Whoever is the, I'm sure, I'm sure Britain is the net beneficiary of it, but nevertheless, it is important. We have stood alongside America in pretty much every conflict since the First World War, excluding Vietnam. And America has stood beside us uh, in pretty much every conflict that we've been involved in ourselves. So, you know, that relationship is vital. And, and, and there is talk now about, you know, we, we need to be looking more at standing on our own without the US. I think that is a very, very bad state of affairs. Um, obviously, we do need to increase our capabilities and our political will to use military force when needed. But we cannot afford to have that relationship fractured, in my opinion. Colonel, uh, please tell us about the time you served in Afghanistan. When was this? Uh, what was going on at that time? I was there in 2003. And after 2003, I was working for a, a group called the Joint Intelligence Committee in Britain, which is the government's top level intelligence organization. Um, and and well, one of my responsibilities there for several years after 2003 was Afghanistan. So I was watching it very closely then from the intelligence perspective and still I'm now. But when I went there in 2003, it was early in the campaign. The Taliban had been driven out. Al-Qaeda had been driven out largely, not, not entirely. But it was a relatively quiet period. It didn't it hadn't uh, reached the levels of violence and military um, significance that it had in later years, particularly when Britain was in Helmand and the US was in other parts of Afghanistan. Um, but but one thing that sort of stands out to me is was the the enormous feeling of optimism by the people there. Most of the people. I don't think I met anyone apart from terrorists that we were dealing with. Uh, I say dealing with. I don't mean dealing with. I mean, actually getting rid of. Um, that, that didn't appreciate our presence. And there was a lot of gratitude that we had freed the Afghan people from the, from the shackles of the Taliban. We had promised basically greater freedom for the people in Afghanistan. We promised probably greater prosperity, uh, a, a way of life that was more akin to our own. And that was, that was something that, you know, with the, the increased use of the internet, et cetera, many Afghans looked at very enviously. So that was the feeling back then in 2003. And you have to contrast that with the images we've seen of, of desperate Afghans clinging on to taxiing military aircraft, in some cases falling off to their deaths. 
to see the the, the, the the absolutely stark contrast between one of optimism and one of undiluted fear at the prospect of the Taliban from now on ruling their lives. So that, you know, that's something that I think that, that those kind of thoughts will, will live with me always when I think of Afghanistan. Colonel, there are a couple of things that Joe Biden said during his speech that I just wanted to get your comments on. One was that he said that if you're 20 years old, uh, you've never known a day of peace in Afghanistan. And it hit me, he said, as far as I know, no one I knew that we were even at war in Afghanistan. And then the second thing he said was that China would love to see us bogged down in another war in Afghanistan. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you're lying to us. First of all, China has already is has, is recognizing the Taliban as a government, and they are just chomping at the bit to invest billions of dollars into mining in Afghanistan, which supposedly uh, has minerals worth trillions of dollars. So these are just more things that he said that were just so false and misleading. And again, just your perspective from you know the misleading of America, the misleading of the world, and where we go from here. There is no more gleeful country in the world today than China as a result of what happened. There's plenty of others who are very pleased, but China, above all, China will now, I think, become the the, the dominant um, external player in Afghanistan. As you say, they will pillage the country for its wealth. They will uh, invest heavily in the Taliban. They will um, they they will use the the territory to to solidify and consolidate their already very strong relationship with Pakistan. They, they would, they, 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 they are delighted. And so, so is uh, Russia. Russia will also have influence in Afghanistan now. And they, those two countries will use their influence as well as for their own personal gain, but also for um, ways of getting at the West, which there will be many on the basis of their, their dominance in Pakistan, in Afghanistan. The other countries, of course, that are extremely glad about it are Pakistan. Pakistan without, the, without Pakistan, the Taliban could not have achieved what they've achieved. They would not be governing Afghanistan today if it wasn't for Pakistan. And that was pretty much admitted by Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, when he said a few days ago he expressed his, his delight at the takeover by the Taliban. They've, they've funded the Taliban, they armed the Taliban, they equipped the Taliban, they supported the Taliban in every way for 20 years, you, sometimes using our taxpayers' aid money to do so, uh, aid to Pakistan, that is. Um, equally, not equally, but, but they were the main, the main sponsors and supporters. Also, Iran sponsored and supported the Taliban. They provided weapons for them. They paid them when they killed American and British soldiers. They gave them safe haven in Iran. And the same goes for both Russia and for China. And China, for those who aren't aware of it, China's relationship with the Taliban included paying them, the Taliban, a lot of money to, to track down, to hunt down and kill Uyghur leaders who'd escaped from China into, um, into Afghanistan. So the Chinese were paying Sunni Muslims to murder Sunni Muslims who'd escaped from China. Uh, and, and, you know, so the, it, it is all lies to suggest that... Uh, that the Chinese wanted us uh, and that Russians wanted us to stay in Afghanistan. They're delighted that we've gone, and now it's their turn. Colonel, humanitarians and most decent people are aghast at how dogs are being abandoned, 
left to die or are killed in Afghanistan. What's up with this cruelty? Well, it's it's a part of the culture um, of the Taliban and, and of other elements within Afghanistan. And, and it's not just animals that are being hunted down or just being killed or, or tortured or left to die. It's people as well. Um, we shouldn't forget the way the Taliban operates. The Taliban, uh, women will not be walking around the streets without being covered head to foot. They will not be allowed out of their homes without their male guardian. Most of them won't be allowed to work. The Taliban claim that they will let some work, and maybe they will for a bit, maybe they won't, we'll see. Um, they've already said that women are not allowed to be able to hold um, ministerial positions in government as they have up to now. They will certainly not be allowed to hold positions like judges, etc. Um, and, and, you know, the children will be forbidden, and adults will be forbidden from listening to music, flying kites, which is a great pastime in Afghanistan, Anything, all the pleasures and the freedoms they've enjoyed will be taken away from them. On top of which, those who transcend will find themselves stoned to death, will find themselves with hands and feet amputated. They'll be whipped in the streets. They will be executed, tortured and imprisoned. This, will, this is the lot of anyone who transgresses the Taliban's Sharia law, which is now back in force in Afghanistan, as it was before 2001. Colonel, most of the media in America has really come down hard on on President Biden, even a number of the liberal uh, outlets. But there were some who are not coming to his defense. Last week, one of your members of um, parliament, I don't remember his name, he came down on Joe Biden harder than I've ever heard any Republican come down on him. Um, I don't remember his name, but how has the media in Great Britain responded? Because, again, it's not just about America. This is also about British prestige now on the line as well. Well, I think there's been a great deal of condemnation of what's happened in British media um, and in, you know, among many British politicians. And even the BBC have, have struggled to, uh, to keep on supporting Joe Biden in these conditions. And normally, of course, they were his, probably his greatest cheerleader in the UK. <clears throat> but um, I think the you know, one, one concerning aspect of it is that, um, and probably predictably, that <clears throat> the government over here are doing their best to make sure that as little blame as possible falls on their shoulders. Um, and you know, they are doing their best to kind of distance themselves from President Biden's decision, which I believe they were very pleased with. They were glad when Biden said he would pull out of Afghanistan, whatever they say now. They wanted out and they were glad to be to be got out. So I think the the essentially the um, you know, the British government um, wants to avoid whatever blame it can can for what's been happening in Afghanistan. It wanted to come out. It was very pleased to come out, um, although it pretends that it tried to get um, the, uh, as I mentioned before, a NATO coalition to remain in place. It had no intention of doing that. We even tried to um, persuade President Biden to keep the evacuation going longer than he planned, i.e. beyond the 31st of August. I don't think that was ever expected. I don't, I don't think our prime minister would have asked him to do that if he thought he would say yes. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, in my view, a bit of a concern. But broadly speaking, I think most people in this country um, are horrified at what they've seen unfolding, as I'm sure most people whatever political persuasion they have, must be deeply concerned about what's happening um, from the U.S. point of view. Yeah, Bela, we have about three minutes left. 
Yes, very quick question. Um, I just want to go back a little bit to something that you said about women uh, not being able to be educated and have jobs. Um, so we expect that, we ex- and we did expect that, but there was a point where um, the Taliban uh, said to people, said to the women, go back to school, go back to work. So what's up with that? Why did they say that? Was this just for publicity, for the media? Well, there's two differences between the Taliban in 2001 and the Taliban now. One is that they they are much more outward looking, um, particularly the younger members who've been fighting the West for 20 years, some of whom have been in Guantanamo Bay as as uh, guests there. But they they you know before the Taliban was focused entirely internally on Afghanistan. Now they're also focused externally, and they pose a great threat to us from that point of view. The second thing that's different about them is they're media savvy. And as you suggested, they've been saying things that we like to hear. And I think the purpose of that, above all, was to, um, to, 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 to not give any of the governments involved in pulling out the, the kind of opportunity or the excuse to reconsider and, and stay there. And, and I, I don't think that was ever likely, but the Taliban may have thought it could be uh, and therefore have been making these platitudes. Think they know what the West wants to hear now. They, they're kind of, in a way, echoing in a different way, the echoing the media savviness of the uh, Islamic State when it was at its height running parts of Syria. Yeah. Colonel, we've Thank got you. a little, Thank you, got a little bit. Uh, do you have, did you have another question, uh, I just, you know, I'll say that we have a little bit more than a minute left, and I just wanted to end the show on a different note. Um, you have been, you are one of the most sought-after guests, especially on this subject matter, and Bela and I, and Bela will thank you as well. Uh, thank you so much for making time for us. We know that you've got a full schedule. Everybody wants to talk to you, and uh, as I told you earlier, you know, we consider you to be an honorary member of the tribe. Uh, we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur coming up, and uh, we just want to wish you, your family, good health, continued prosperity, uh, continued everything that you're doing for us, for humanity. I said before that you are a patriot to democracy and freedom all over the world. And we're honored to have you, you know, as a friend and a regular guest of our show. I know Bela wants to I say I second yes. that notion. Uh, having you on our show is, is an incredible honor. Um, giving us your, your valuable time. It, it, it's just something that we cannot express enough gratitude towards you. Thank you. Um, Colonel, thank thank you for joining us today. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. And of course, thank you to vidnews.com for our show being their official podcast. And a happy Rosh Hashanah to everyone. And may this Jewish New Year bring peace, health, and wealth to all. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.